This is Unmasked, the real face of the heroes. A six-part podcast with dramatised interviews of frontline workers in one of the UK's largest NHS hospitals, St George's, in London. This is a unique insider's view of the human beings at the heart of the COVID-19 crisis. Episode 1. Aggie is where it all started. I'm a paediatrician, but now a brand new redeployed medical examiner, learning how to scrutinise notes and support the bereaved. The hospital itself was eerily quiet, but ED and the ITUs are bursting with activity. Intensivists Aggie, Jay and Richard have the first big mortality and morbidity meeting to prepare for a week after the height of the peak at St George's and the chatter is all number of patients, beds and the speed of it all. Senior anaesthetist Richard moves patients into intensive care from other hospitals. Jay manages teams looking after the ventilated patients, sometimes 30 at a time. And Aggie runs between the intensive care units troubleshooting. So we try to catch our breaths. April 22nd, 2020. The day has a certain rhythm to it. Um, On retrieval, we start early in the morning. We check all the kits and make sure everything is in place, so if you get a call, we can go as soon as possible. Usually hospitals are calling because they want us to take somebody reasonably urgently, so we like to get there fairly quickly. So we start meeting up with each other, making sure the team is there, nobody is sick, they're all well. Contact our top cover consultant, uh, somebody who is organising throughout the region with all the ITU consultants, uh, as to what's going on and who needs help. And once the kit's checked, we say we're ready. A few people I've worked with are very uncomfortable with this analogy that this is war and battle and they've said we're not soldiers and they don't want to be addressed as such. I think for some of my colleagues it's definitely felt like it's, uh, it helps because then it's a battle in a war that everyone's fighting. It adds structure. It certainly gives clarity on what the main efforts are and you can work on understanding things systematically. It's very apparent that everyone is invested. We're all confined to our homes and it's almost like freedom an allowance to purely and simply engage with the efforts for this one nasty condition. And I think that's quite liberating because we've managed to achieve things. We've been talking about intensive care for years and what may have taken years we've managed to do in days to weeks, like surging and building an intensive care 34-bed critical care asset. We converted a ward into an intensive care unit, which actually transpired to be our biggest capacity intensive care unit. We love him. He loves other dogs. He tolerates us totally. So tonight I kiss my boy, play with him a little bit, give him his dinner, give him his chicken foot, then give him cuddles and then sardine and clean his teeth with a vibrating toothbrush. Then I research. Tomorrow I'm presenting at the M&M meeting and the mortality in intensive care now is immense. We look at data for the last six weeks. We had 160 patients, 80 died, and the rest is going to the wards. That's consistent with national data. Being in intensive care and being intubated and on the ventilator, it carries a very, very bad prognosis. We're still learning this disease process. 
I'm an intensive care consultant since 2002 at St. George's, so I'm very senior. I'm also a cardiac anesthetist, and my work's been converted to totally intensive care, which I like. I like. I like coming to work. I like coming to work before COVID. And I still think that there is a sense of purpose for us, and coming to work is better than sitting at home. That's why I feel sorry for people who are alone, or even with their families, they are stuck. I think it's a great privilege. Yesterday, we already had three jobs lined up. Uh, never quite ends up like that, I've discovered. Um, we went to Croydon for the first, where there's a patient who needs to come to George's for dialysis. So uh, we get down to the ambulance, and uh, there are two lovely guys, uh, Danny and Johnny. They're a father and son team, actually, and uh, the son used to be in the circus. He was uh, a circus performer, so he can do rigging, he can do high stuff, he can, he can do just about anything. They both joined up with this ambulance service that George's is renting. They're really, really nice guys. Um, and anyway, uh, we join up with the ambulance crew and head off to the hospital and we find the patient in intensive care. And we get to the unit and we get into the PPE kit. Um, often the hospitals are generous enough to give their PPE kit, uh, whatever it is, we're, we're going to spend the next three to four hours in some uh, fairly hot kit. Critical care expanded in the surge around the beginning of April, so I'm leading the team on shift, and I have juniors who look after three or four patients, but I oversee the care of maybe 21 patients, and sometimes I run between units to supervise. And the patient, they're coming and going. We have a lot of transfers from other hospitals, helping them with renal replacement, for example. And, well, obviously, they are unwell, but they can be critically, critically ill. Cardiac intensive care actually takes the most unstable and complex patient uh, because we have the facilities for that in terms of the organ support. So I oversee how this care is provided for each and all of these 21 patients. It's a different work from our work before COVID. The patients are very different. We see unwell patients before. St. George's is a trauma center, so, so we see complex, unwell patients. We are familiar with dealing with trauma and stronger life support, and we have protocols. But COVID, it's very, very new disease. It affects all systems, primarily lungs, but not necessarily. It's also cardiovascular, causing heart attacks, kidney, pulmonary embolism. We go through to the patient and we just make sure things are as they were sold to us, that the, the patient's still stable. We transfer the patient according to a certain checklist. It's, it's all checklisted. It, it's all done in a certain way because if we do things the same every time, then we won't make errors. We won't miss stuff out and, and that's what it's all about. Uh, and so we move the patient across. There are, there are often larger BMI patients, so it's often a lot of effort from everyone involved. Um, we make our way to the ambulance, and uh, again, we're in, we're in full kit by then, so quite often going down the corridors, people see us coming and run a mile. As uh, I think we're a fairly uh, fearsome set of people, you know, marching down the corridor with all the, the trolley and the kit hanging off the edge and, and us in our PPE and, and, and sometimes some fairly burly security going, uh, going ahead to clear the corridor. We head our way home and come home to a George's intensive care bed where we can hand over and put the patient on the bed, set them up a little bit and then get ready for the next job. We've got a lot of cleaning to do, of course, clean everything down, try to have a bite to eat, uh, then back into the ambulance for the next job.
We have a code because the front cab is sealed from the rest of the ambulance because of COVID. Uh, we can't actually communicate. Everyone's communications are underneath their PPE. So, so a soft tap on the window is we want a word and bang, bang, bang on the window means pull up on the side of the road, we're in trouble. We just got um, baby monitors. The trouble with phones are that uh, once you're donned, your phone is then underneath your PPE and you're off comms. To access your phone, to communicate, would then breach your PPE or you have to doff. So it was well, quite interesting how we look to adapt. Us wearing PPE is very tiring, very tiring. Breathing through the masks, obviously it's essential for protection, but breathing through the mask is, is difficult. Talking and being heard, looking through the visor and seeing 21 patients, and you see others working beyond and above. I see my colleagues when they go home, they really, they still keep on working, researching, looking at the new developments, compiling data, and, and particularly the nurses are impacted on even more because they have to wear the protection the whole day and they need to be at the bedside for 12 hours with short breaks. Usually nurse-to-patient ratio is one-to-one in UK in our intensive care unit, but now it's one-to-five. And at night, we don't have all the teams that are present during the day. Uh, we have a line insertion team, tracheostomy team. Not that I will be doing tracheostomy in the middle of the night. Uh, the subspecialities, the proning team, none are there. And some nights I run around the hospital doing an outreach. We're here for the long haul, so it's not just a very short sprint. I used to be a runner. I'd run and run and run for fun until I got a stress fracture in my hip. But nights are difficult. Nights are difficult for me. At my stage in my career, I'm not used to being in hospital every night. It's a lot. A lot. Yeah. Sometimes you find, as yesterday, the patients deteriorated before we get there and uh, they're not suitable for transfer. We try and transfer the most stable patients because they're the ones who will, uh, you can say, rumble the least when we get them back because, because they're so fragile, these patients. Any kind of transfer, even from bed to bed or from down to CT and back again, the, the whole ventilation can go off. And, uh, and we found that a few times on transfer. So, so we try to get the most stable patients. Quite often the other units ask, is, is George's quiet? Is not much going on? Uh, it's not because of that. It, we've got plenty of sick patients here. It's just that the ones we want to bring are stable. So that happened yesterday, uh, one patient getting quite unstable. I mean, we just went round the corner because they found another one in the same place. So we, we popped round the corner and, and did the same again with somebody else. The Easter weekend was brutal and staggering in terms of just the number of stories human beings, and not just the patients, then that's been the most incredible, humbling feeling. You turn up on your own purple rig, and yes, you're then in PPE, but it's very clear that there's only one or two of you in purple rig, and there's a whole fleet of people that are there to care from volunteers and people who've been battle-promoted from HCAs to healthcare professionals, healthcare assistants rather, and nurses who are now critical care nurses. The currency of intensive care is one of critical care nurse to a patient. And suddenly that has been markedly stretched, not just in St George's, across the country, across the world. People have turned up to be frontline and take it on risk and half of that 200 people that would be in some way or form working with you and 
in many ways feels like they're working for you and your bandwidth and your leadership and there isn't magic on my, my orifices. You're very much, uh, I'm very much human and the key thing is to try and keep as much bandwidth open as possible so you can absorb the unknown unknowns. That was the key lesson at the end of this brutal seven to eight days. The unknown unknowns. The fact that there's now a foundation year two doctor who's effectively looking after a part of casualties and doing it so diligently in, in PPE for three, four, five hours and I'm just working with the most incredible, just diligent I guess and, and, and fortitude because they have to behave in a fearless manner but then there's a death and then another death and the death completely blindsides you and it is a savage, brutal, multi-organ Whatever anyone says is not a single organ ventilator-based pathology. It's a truly insidious, nasty, multi-organ pathology. When these patients have been intubated by a strange quirk of the disease, they're often really quite alert. Uh, most people who've got respiratory failure and the lungs are failing to the point of being intubated are, are quite literally gasping their last and uh, are unable to speak. But one really bizarre thing, one of many bizarre things about this disease is that quite often people are talking almost normally with, with really low saturation. They're, they're talking, they're texting their wife saying, oh, which intensive care am I going to? Cardiothoracic? And, and they're helping get themselves across to the bed and they're, and they're desperately needing intubation. But it's, it's really, really strange to see people talking normally and yet being in such dire straits. Everyone mentions it. It's it's very, very strange. They can fight the ventilators at times as well. They're, they're often quite difficult to sedate, and as some of the drugs are running in short supply, people are, people are very clever in creating the most complex sedation systems using other available drugs, which is... Um, anything new is always difficult to, to manage. You know before you step onto that unit, regardless of how much mound of courage you have, you're going to be deplete by the end. And you have to be generous with that because where you may have had 20 quick care nurses that you would have worked with, there are now a fleet of junior doctors and volunteers and people delivering food, people on risk, you know, in PPE cleaning and deep cleaning. Simple but imperative functions of a multifaceted organism. We can't function without the various parts and yet you don't have enough time to know anybody's name. There's 200 people you come across. You see maybe four or five people you can identify by name and you're also then further in PPE so it's harder to even know anybody's name. That person who brought you that emergency piece of equipment or drug in crisis. And at the end of the day, you even a fragment of this, you'd spend time in debrief and say, are you all right? And check in with each other. It's just an impossibility. Whether they did a fantastic job or a suboptimal job or if they were just another person on my bandwidth that was consuming it. Just to offer my gratitude for being there and uh, extraordinary courage because it costs nothing but I've never been in a situation where you just don't have the ability to say how grateful you are and that might be my only encounter with them during this entire crisis maybe my whole career they've all been mass seconded into intensive care they've come in with great risk to themselves their loved ones and they're possibly working off a normal range of skills and expertise and yet the ability to turn up in a very hostile environment the ability to learn, to improvise, to adapt and just simply to help. But it's the way that people adapted and improvised and evolved as the circumstances were being presented to us. 
For example, you have a pod and you had to enter that pod in full PPE and there's four, five patients in there, but of course once you're in there, you can't just keep donning and doffing and donning and doffing, so you remain in there, but of course communication is a hazard and so the way the nurses and junior doctors were starting to evolve was uh, they see a patient and of course there's no point writing on a piece of paper, you can't take it out of the pod, so they'd write on one of the tissue papers and then they'd tape it to the window, which then they can see themselves as their superimposed set of thoughts, notes and checklist of things that they need to do once they were outside of the pod. Small things like that. One of the trainees had COVID and was returning to work and they said, Agita, I don't feel that I can physically actually go back to work because I'm still unrecovered. I'm not contagious or infectious anymore, but I just don't feel I can take it. And it's not mental, it's physical, it's just feeling physically drained and and um then i said i've done like six nights on site and i never never took a day off sick or being unwell i'm constitutionally and mentally quite strong and i just think that being strong-headed will overcome any difficulties or any physical issues but it was the fourth night of six and then i stop i think this is the fourth night of running fourth of six and i say then Do we pretend that we are strong enough to take it? Do we do something that we can't do? We need to acknowledge our weaknesses. We cannot take this. Accept we are vulnerable. So, no more running around the hospital. We tell the rotor manager, you and me. And my trainee says, okay. Hopefully, towards the end of things, we will be repatriating people, getting them back to their home hospitals, nearer their families. Because, of course, one of the strangest things, apart from walking onto the normal wards with these patients, is seeing where a few months ago people were basically having cups of tea, getting better in recovery, and now ventilated people lying prone like swimmers on their beds. And and it's it's very surreal. And also along with that is there's no family members anywhere because nobody can come. And they're trying hard to keep connections, but it's very hard. It's, it's very strange. It's peculiar because at the start of it, we were in darkness, as in the clocks hadn't gone back. The Thursday clapping for key workers was in pitch black darkness, and I know this because my boys are well and truly asleep by then. They're six and four, and they're asleep by 1830, 1900. But the last Thursday was bright sunshine, and it was completely perplexing how there's this perfect bright sunshine and spring and blossom and things that erupted outside of the world that we're living in that we've been immersed in for four weeks and the darkness had gone as well. The sun comes up at 0500 and sets after 2000 and it's so bizarre. People are clapping in bright sunshine on Thursday. But it's also really peculiar because I started trying on purpose to take the boys for a walk. So we brought forward the walk and it's always a really surreal walk but it's now an incredible burst of bright sunshine and green and colours and blossom and butterflies and the boys saying things that I'm missing because they're not quite like the four day old that goes to four months but development is rapid, the vocabulary and their understanding. Like the six year old will say no, don't disturb them, don't disturb them, those two butterflies are mating. I don't know how much they understand but the language they are brandishing is quite incredible. My son gave me £7.50 an envelope and wrote, it's just about right. He's written, dear doctors, please care for everyone and survive. It was to get coffees for everybody. So now I think that I've learned to ask when I feel vulnerable to talk to my colleagues. Vulnerable is new for me. It made me feel like a different, 
different sensation. I said it and I think I would do that again. But we are lucky that we can actually work. And we're lucky that we have abilities to save some of the patients. And we do the clapping now for the all front line keep society running. Come on, Rufus. We write this M&M. &M. Today is actually one of our layoff days. So yesterday was a busy day. Uh, today's a day where I've come into... Um, we, we package what we've done in the last two weeks in a meeting just to try and make sure we're doing it right. Uh, talk about anything that's gone wrong, anything that's gone well, and anything we can do to improve the service. It's had to change quite a bit in the last couple of weeks as the disease process and the needs of the patients have changed and it'll probably continue to do so. So that's today. When you enter intensive care you come with a certain amount of courage and you leave a piece of your soul behind which you don't you won't get back but it's then remunerated with the privilege and the honour that you had to be a part of to work with everyone that you were surrounded with and to enter into these patients' lives at their most critical moment in life. You have no right to be in their lives before that moment. And suddenly the most intimate, most terrible end moment, potential end moment in their life, their most critical battle in their life, and you are suddenly given a seat at the command centre to be a part of their life. And that's privilege. When I fall asleep, or kind of semi-asleep, I want him to sleep on my bed, and so I open my eye, and I can see him trying to get down to hide behind the sofa. But yesterday he stayed with me overnight, and my husband, the first question he asked me in the morning, he says, oh, when did he come down? I said, no, no, actually he didn't come down. He stayed with me. He loves life, and he brings so much life to our home. Just being faced with intensive care and everything, bringing life through Rufus, it's just... It's just what it is. It's a great privilege. Unmasked is a Serena Hayward production. Anya Sawinski was Dr. Agnieszka Krera gilbert Tom Blythe was Dr. Richard Hartop. Sushil Chudasama was Dr. Jayashanka Jainarvan, with Tracy Ann Oberman as Dr. Serena Hayward. It was written by Serena Hayward and Joseph Lidster. It was directed by Neil J. Biden. Production assisted by Sarah Weatherall, David Biden-Oaks, Helena Copsey, Glenn Webb and Holly Conley, with original music by Frana Otter, in association with St. George's Charity and St. George's NHS Trust. Please support the NHS Charity and Actors Benevolent Fund on Just Giving.